Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us this morning for this webinar. My name is Jonathan Butcher, and I'm a senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. I'm so pleased to be joined today by three charter school leaders from three different states in the US, and we're gonna be talking about what they are doing right now to bring stability and continuity to students uh, during this very unusual time for schools around the country. As I think you're about to hear from my guests, some of the schools are in week three or four of this adjustment and school closures. Uh, some are not, some are earlier in the process because the way that the academic calendar fits, they may have been on spring break while some of the um, uh, social distancing guidelines and other school closures were happening. So these schools are, are in different, not only physical locations, but in different stages of adjusting to providing instruction or trying to help students right now uh, during uh, the response to the virus. So uh, with that, uh, let me explain again that, um, that we're talking with charter school leaders and charter schools are public schools of choice created by parents, teachers, and community leaders. And these schools have more flexibility than district schools do. And I think that that is part of the linchpin of what our dis discussion is going to be today, is that these schools had some more flexibility. And so how is that going to translate into helping students faster or differently or at all right now uh, during this change? So it's my pleasure uh, now to introduce them. And uh, I'm going to introduce them in the order that they'll be speaking. And so uh, with that, uh, thank you again for joining us and, and so glad to have these gentlemen with us. So first, um, I'm pleased to introduce from Pennsylvania, uh, David Hardy. So Dave is an established leader in Philadelphia's education community and one of the few people who both talks the talk and walks the walk in their dedication to students. He's the former CEO and co-founder of Boys Latin in Philadelphia, which is a charter school. It opened in 2007 and it, in its first four graduating classes, Boys Latin sent 85% of its graduates to post-secondary institutions, 80% of which were four-year colleges. David lives in Philadelphia with his wife, has two adult sons, and he's a board member with the Center for Education Reform. They are a partner uh, with us in the efforts to give every child the chance to succeed in school and in life. After David, we will hear from Peter Boyle, who is out in Arizona, where it's a little earlier there than it is here on the East Coast. He is the founding director of Western School of Science and Technology, which is a Challenge Foundation Academy. He's a native of Baltimore, Maryland, and Mr. Boyle became involved in education in 2009 on the campus recruiting team for Teach for America at the University of North Carolina. 
Following Peter, we will have uh, Vamshi Rudrapati, and he is the director of the Charter Institute at Erskine College, which is near Greenwood in South Carolina. He spent 10 years in the charter world, seven of these years specifically with an authorizer. Now, the Institute at Erskine has 17 schools now. In July of this year, they will be serving schools that account for 17,000 students, and they will be the largest statewide authorizer in South Carolina and that's as of this summer. So, so happy to have these gentlemen with us. And so let's get started. And, and I believe that um, the gentlemen will have uh, muted themselves. And so David, if you'll unmute yourself and, and please get us going. Okay, thank you, Jonathan. Uh, it's great to be here today. Um, and, and it's great to talk about this issue. This is, this is something that, you know, I don't think any of us have seen in our lifetime. This is, this is almost like a war. It's almost like people bombing the country because you know 9/11 they got New York, suburban Pittsburgh and 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 Maryland, the Maryland DC area. But this is the entire country that's affected by this. And and when you look at how people have responded, I I it's my opinion that the charters were really out front in this right away. As schools of choice, as schools that have to attract and retain parents and, and, and their children, um, we know that when something happens, we have to respond, and we have to respond in a meaning, in a quick and meaningful way. Um, for the schools that I'm personally contacted, uh, uh, connected with, uh, Ad Prima Charter School here in Philadelphia is a K-8 charter school, uh, about, about 700 students, and didn't have the uh, computer infrastructure when this whole thing hit. What they did was they immediately put together packets that they distributed to their children and that they also had on their website. They chunked, they made a plan that they would chunk this thing in, into two week intervals because they didn't know how long it was gonna last. They don't wanna plan for beyond how the, the uh, time it would last. So they, they took, two-week chunks. The first chunk was all paper um, worksheets and, and packets. By the next time, they had done a survey to know who had access online, and they were able to get Chromebooks out to the students who didn't have IT uh, access. So now they can, they can um, provide that information by uh, on, you know, online um, delivery. Uh, Boys Latin has a one-to-one -one laptop program here, so they have enough laptops for every student in the school. It, it's uh, 6 through 12 uh, grade configuration, and the 10th, 11th, and 12th graders take their, take their laptops home, so they weren't an issue. What the school had to do was uh, distribute laptops to the rest of the people, which they did pretty quickly. And they actually have a, a, a three-prong um, three approach to online learning. They have some online live classes, they have tape classes, and then they have lessons on, online, you know, uh, materials online that the children, uh, the students can access to be able to uh, continue their learning. Um, the Philadelphia School District was a little bit slow in this. Now, not everybody, and I think this is important. 
there were some teachers who, as soon as this thing hit, they were good teachers. They were connected with their classes, and they put information out there. They didn't have to wait for somebody downtown to tell them to do that. That's what a good teacher does instinctively. And they have they have good teachers who did that. What happened, though, was that the, the, the school district stopped them from doing it. They prohibited that. And what they said was that because everybody didn't have access, it was an equity issue. Now, you know, it's a reverse thing. It was a reverse solution to, equ to an equity issue. If you have an equity issue, the job is to expand equity, not take away the right from everybody, which is what they did. They got a big backlash from that. So then uh, they wanted to start uh, uh, an online learning program. Uh, just last Thursday, they approved the purchase of 50,000 Chromebooks, which they plan to distribute um, next week. Uh, no, excuse me, the 13th of, of April. Um, I don't see how they do that. I mean, that's a lot of Chromebooks. <laughs> it's supposed to have materials in them. It's supposed to have instructions. It just seems like a pretty big, a tall order to do. Um, but it really, it just shows the slowness of getting a decision made in a big school district versus a single charter school or a small charter school network who can say, hey, we're going to do it. Where do we get started? Let's go. So, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a big thing. Um, from, from our state, um, the state has not really been um, a good partner in this, in my opinion, because the state has been more concerned about prohibiting cyber schools than they are with helping schools that are bricks and mortar get a cyber program going through this crisis. Uh, the state immediately banned enrollment in uh, cyber schools in Pennsylvania. And that was to protect the, the low performing schools. If you are in a high performing school, if you're satisfied with your school in Pennsylvania, whether it be a charter school or a traditional public school, you're not going to leave because of this crisis. You're going to ride this crisis out and, and, and go back to school, the school that you wanted to be in. But if you were unhappy with that school, with the school you were in in the first place, and then this crisis comes in, you see there's an opportunity to, to have your child learn cyber, you're a lot more interested in going, well, maybe I'll take a shot at that. And many of those people won't come back. And I think they recognize that. And I think that's why the, the state has been relatively unsupportive, in my opinion, of getting this whole thing done. They haven't put out any additional resources to help the schools, the bricks and mortar schools that are doing it. And they seem to be um, impeding the experts in it, the cyber schools. So, you know, I, I, I think that's a, another problem. Um, about reaching um, the... Uh, disadvantaged students and low-income students in urban and rural um, areas, I would say this. If you were in a bad school where they weren't delivering good education to begin with, taking that online is not, certainly not going to improve it. And I think that what you'll see is it, it will wind up distancing children from school, distancing students, uh, students who, who uh, especially the older ones, you know, the, the teenagers who would have a little bit more freedom in this in this situation, 
will become disengaged with schools. And I, I, I'm, I'm really concerned about that. I'm also concerned about the fact that, you know, the school year stopped at the end of February here. <laughs> That's not a whole school year. And you're not going to make that up online. And I don't hear anybody talking about summer school. And I think that we need to start thinking about how we try to salvage whatever part of this year we can with in-school, in-classroom instruction. Because that's the most, that, that, that's what people were getting before this happened. That's what they chose before this happened, for most of them. Um, and that's what they need to be in. I mean, to, to kind of change your delivery system in the middle of a crisis means that your teachers and administrators have to learn how to deliver it. And then you have to learn how to accept it. I mean, that's a learning curve. And I'm not sure we have that time. So in this crisis, I think one of the things we should be talking about is how do we extend the school year or find a way of salvage the learning time that was lost um, um, because of this pandemic. So that, thank, that's it. Thank you. Thank you, David. Those were um, excellent points. I, I want to, uh, before we move to Peter, let me ask just one quick question to you about that last point. Do you think because charter schools have more flexibility, do you think that that's something that charter schools could either ask of their authorizer or would easily be able to switch to? That is extending the school year, talking about classes in the summer. I mean, do you think that's something that charters would be able to uh, to adjust to relatively quickly? And I think, and I guess I'm asking on a, on a technical perspective. I mean, do you think they, can you just go to your authorizer and ask that? How will that happen? Well, you know, I think, I think that 10 years ago in charters, you'd pretty much just do it. <laughs> Now the authorizers are becoming a lot more controlling. So yes, you probably would have to go to your authorizer to ask for uh, permission to do it, and you might get pushback. Somewhat like the 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 the, rent, the rogue teachers who went out and started online programs for them for their students or some type of connection with their students, and they got smacked down from people on high that said somebody else isn't getting it, so you can't do it, and we'd be in that situation too, I believe. Um, but I, I think, I, I don't think this is just a charter problem. I think everybody, everybody who had kids in school need to get those kids back in school. I think that you'll see charters pushing to do this. I think with traditional public schools, a lot of things turn out to be a matter of what labor will accept. So they're gonna have some labor issues with this because their people get paid for 10 months and they're going to think they they work their 10 months. So the summertime is going to require extra money. And then that's that's going to get pretty tricky. But I like I said, I don't I don't see a way around this without time. You, time, time in the seed <laughs> learning is is what these students need. And they haven't gotten it. And 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 like I said, uh, an ad hoc online system is helpful, but it's not the solution. Yeah, thank you, David. I, I think there's some um, I think there's some real things to think about there, and um, that that flexibility that charters and all schools, frankly, may need. That's something that we've heard even from the U.S. Department of Education talking about more flexibility for schools. So maybe beginning a conversation about how we open up the summer could be something that uh, uh, that we begin to talk about. So thank you. All right. So uh, Peter is not able to join us via video. 
Uh, but Peter, if you can make sure you're not uh, uh, muted. And then uh, again, Peter's joining us from Arizona uh, with the uh, Western School of Science and Technology. So Peter, can you tell us uh, uh, what's happening with you in Arizona? Absolutely. Thank you, Jonathan. And I apologize to everyone for being the disembodied voice on the webinar today, but we are all in a brave new world together. And so thank you very much um, for your flexibility with me. So a little bit of background. Again, my name is Peter Boyle. I'm the founder and principal at Western School of Science and Technology, and we have been serving the Maryvale neighborhood in West Phoenix since 2014. And our explicit goal since we opened was to be the highest performing uh, public high school in our community. And we have been living out that goal, again, as the highest performing public high school in Maryvale since we opened. Um, we are very much reflective of our community. West Phoenix is one of the more underserved neighborhoods in the city. Um, upwards of 98% of our students identify as Hispanic or Latino. 80% speak a language other than English at home. And approximately 95% qualify for uh, free and reduced lunch. And so that's just important contextual factors regarding the environment in which we work over in West Phoenix. One of the things that's also important for us to consider with this particular um, situation is that we were on spring break when um, social distance guidelines and all of the other um, situations began really ramping up in terms of coronavirus and COVID-19. Um, and what we did was we extended our spring break by a week um in order to best plan for how to implement remote learning and that was a tremendous advantage for us to give us the time uh to plan to give us the time to connect with stakeholders to vet some ideas and also receive updated guidance from the state within that time um so we are currently in our first week of implementation day three of implementation with our remote learning plan i'll go over its particulars in just a moment but there were a couple of advantages that i think um, really worked well for us in this new situation the first is that from the beginning we planned for an indefinite closure um, none of us knew what was going to come next uh, that turned out to be a wise choice and that Arizona schools will be closed until the end of the school year um, coming from the governor and superintendent's office and so that was something we planned for from the beginning and we wanted to make sure that we had the ability um, with whatever structure we landed on to implement for the next two and a half months. The second real advantage for us um, is that we are a one-to-one -one technology school so each student is issued a uh, Chromebook by the school. Students can take them home, and the vast majority of our students are working in some form of online instruction in combination with the teacher in classrooms every day. Um, and so both from the teacher perspective, from the student perspective, and to some degree from the family perspective, we have a significantly high degree of technology penetration that uh, and familiarity that allows for a pretty quick switch to this remote learning plan. Um, and then lastly, our internet service provider in West Phoenix, which is Cox Communications, um, has been working for some time to provide connectivity to families. And so that's a partnership um, that they offer throughout the city and that our families are able to take advantage of, of. And so that's another kind of boon that we had. We also had a specific staff member whose title is Director of Personalized Learning. Um, and his role is to really support teachers in their tech integration in their classrooms and their blended learning and their personalized learning initiatives. Um, and so having his capacity, even though he's a part-time and offsite staff member, but having his capacity at all 
was tremendously helpful for us. And then lastly, just in terms of statewide context, um, there has been significant and dare I say, uh, unanimously bipartisan statewide flexibility granted to Arizona schools. And so the legislature had an emergency session last week um, and unanimously passed a series of statewide flexibility measures that apply to all public schools, district and charter here in Arizona, um, that waive a large number of requirements. And so that has allowed us some degree of certainty fairly early on um, that has helped us really, again, plan for this brave new world. Um, our model for instruction during this time is playlist-based instruction. And I'll go over that in a moment, but we framed this as, this is everyone's first rodeo. Um, none of us, with the exception of, of just a few folks, were around for the last great pandemic about 100 years ago in the United States. And so we are just um, sort of using that as a tagline to provide ourselves some grace. Um, because this is a new situation for everyone. And then we always we all recognize too that this is not something that our faculty, our families, or ourselves signed up for. Um, there are, you know, robust online learning options here in Arizona. That is not the traditional model of our school. And so again, we're just aiming to provide ourselves and asking for some grace from our families too. Um, and again, getting back to the playlist-based learning. A playlist is a personalized learning plan. It's a series of online learning activities that are planned by each teacher, and each, each teacher assigns that playlist a minute value. And that's a rough estimate of how they think the median teacher, excuse me, the median student in their classroom will take to complete that activity. Each teacher populates a playlist, which has about 200 minutes of content from the online learning programs, or from reading materials that we can push out to students via Google Classroom or via their email addresses. Um, each teacher populates that playlist for about 200 minutes a week. Students are required to complete 80 minutes weekly of their choice of the activities in any order. One thing that we recognize is this is a very, very atypical learning environment. Um, and so we're aiming to build some investment on the student side by building in that student choice aspect. And teachers are having some fun with, with what that can include. Um, so, excuse me, students are required to complete 80 minutes weekly. If they go above and beyond that, um, that will be baked into our accountability system, which is basically a hold harmless. So we're keeping quarter three grades open until the end of the semester and how students complete their playlist and how well they complete their playlist will be baked into that quarter three grade. Um, and I mentioned grading because that has come up as a very significant question. Being a seventh grade through 12th grade school, credits are of immense importance to our students, teachers, and families. And so we did need to come up with a, a quick and easy way to build accountability into this system since this is a, not a learning environment that we can necessarily necessarily, excuse me, exercise the same locus of control that we would in a typical brick and mortar space. Um, 80 minutes is, of course, less than the seat time that students would typically have in a classroom, but we did give some feedback that it's about as long, 80 minutes per course in a high school setting as we could reasonably expect um, many of our students and families to be able to complete with the additional obligations they have of either acting as caretakers for younger siblings or many of our students in West Phoenix, uh, West Phoenix excuse me, work in frontline positions um, in pharmacies and grocery stores, things of that nature. And we wanted to bake in some flexibility for that. 
one of the things that's been really important for us, again, just in week one, so these are not just lessons learned, but lessons we're learning, has been a weekly support meetings for teachers and office hours. So we kept our professional development schedule, which we have weekly. Um, we just do it virtually now to make sure that teachers are well supported in this new plan. Um, we're also reaching out to every family asking both connectivity questions and then resource questions. You know, just checking in, how are you doing? What can we do to help and align supports for you? Um, it also is a great way just to build a phone time with our families um, and see where we all are. So we wanted to make sure that we had that initial contact which, with each and every family um, to get a, a true pulse check on where everyone is at this time. Um, we have folks connecting families with resources, both at the city level, at the private level. Um, again, knowing that many of our families are, are in some difficult situations at home in regards to job loss and things of that nature, nature health, of course, as well. Um, and the question comes up, of course, okay, Peter, what do you do about students and families who do not have internet connectivity and who do not have or cannot have um, access via the Cox or other uh, industry programs. Um, so while we are first and foremost just trying to align those programs to families so they can be part, you know, participate and partake in those programs that do provide subsidized connectivity from industry, what we're also looking to do is provide alternate assignments via paper to students who need them, and we're starting that next week. The first thing we wanted to do there was since we have a high degree of tech penetration, we wanted to start there um, and then back into an alternate plan for students and families who might need them. And that also allows teachers a week of planning time to put those together. Students can come and check out books and other resources from our campus as well. So those would be whatever novels we were all reading in our English classes before this started, any textbooks for some of the advanced courses. Um, we're thinking of opening that program up to our musical instrument checkouts, things of that nature too, um, just to do our best to make sure that to address the equity issues mentioned before, starting with online, but then providing an alternate source to the extent that we can. Um, the big needs that we've seen along this lines are just the need to really support faculty members who, even though we have a high degree of ed tech readiness in our building, they're all at different places with this. And so we're trying to take an individual approach with each of our faculty members. Um, we're also aiming to answer frequently asked questions on the phone with families, um, which is one of those purposes of those individual check-ins with each, with each family. We'll probably do that every other week, just to continue a check-in. Um, and we now have the capacity to do it since there's very limited on-campus operations. And then one of the needs, um, speaking about state and authorizer context, we have been um, granted just very, very significant flexibility by the state. There is an attestation that each school or district will need to complete about how we are completing remote learning from, uh, requirements, um, but uh, graduation requirements and school report card requirements and statewide assessment requirements are all in the process of being waived. And so those are just some important, among quite a few other things, seat time requirements, uh, attendance, things of that nature. And so that has, again, been pretty helpful for us as we've been putting together our plan. Um, so I know it's always kind of awkward to have a, a voice on the phone speaking at you uh, for a couple minutes. Thank you again for the flexibility there. Uh, and Jonathan, I'll turn it back over to you. 
Peter, thank you so much. Um, a really interesting uh, plan that you've put together, and that's that should be encouraging, I think, to a lot of folks. Um, before we go to Mr. V, let me ask you one question. So we like the playlist idea. Can you tell me um, tell me a little bit more about how you're tracking students um, uh, using each of the sessions or using each of the, the tracks yeah. on the playlist? How how is that how is that going, or or how are you doing that? That's a great question. Our philosophical approach for playlists has focused first and foremost on access and then secondly on accountability. So we want to make sure first and foremost that students have access to the resources before we dive too far down the road of um, accountability or evaluation from them. What we do to track is, is that all of the um, learning opportunities on the playlist have some sort of accountability mechanism, whereas whether it's an online learning program lesson that you take a quiz at the end, or it is watching a teacher created video and submitting a response to a question the teacher asks, or whether it's showing up to a teacher's office hours and engaging in dialogue, or whether it's a reading log in the case of um, those alternate assessments. So we were pretty, I think, um, trying to be pretty flexible with where students and families might be. There's a lot of troubleshooting that occurs during the day, um, both at the teacher level and then kind of the front office level to make sure things are working well. Uh, but at the same time, we tried to make sure that there were at least some accountability components baked in that teachers could fairly easily check for each of their, you know, 100, 150, 200 students at the end of each week. And so, Part of that is the intentional design of the playlist. A lot of online learning programs will build that in um, and wrapping up that data in a fairly easy way um, is, has been a, a benefit of building out the system. Great, thank you, Peter. That's that's very helpful. Thank you for that. So I'm going to turn it over to to Mr. V now. And in our conversations, uh, Mr. V, over the past couple of weeks, we've talked about a couple of the unique things coming out of South Carolina right now. One is that because South Carolina has virtual charter schools already, and that they are in your under your um, uh, your oversight at the the Institute at Erskine, and that's allowed you to leverage, I think, some of their knowledge right away. And then the second thing I think that's interesting is that the State Department of Ed, and I've, I've heard from some of them at the South Carolina State Department of Ed, have said that they're, you know, working with your office, talking with your office, and, and uh, working with the virtual schools to figure out how you can distribute information about best practices and things like that to uh, schools across the state. So with that, uh, Mr. V, I'm going to... Thank you. Can you hear, hear me? Okay. Um, again, thank you so much for this opportunity for Mr. Butcher and Heritage Foundation. I think a lot is happening in South Carolina and across the world. Uh, telling to help each other and having these conversations definitely help. So really appreciate uh, this opportunity. I think Erskine Charters is, is uniquely blessed uh, with 10,000 kids statewide, statewide, and having the balancing the autonomy of the school and also fulfilling the authorizer roles is a unique challenge in this situation. We are extremely blessed that we have our three online charter schools, South Carolina Virtual, Cyber Academy, and Odyssey Online Learning, who serve 5,000 students across the state, 5,000. These online schools provide school public choice option in every county in South Carolina, where no other choice is available. So virtual schools do provide that. So one of the strengths of Erskine is the online 
education schools that virtually the three schools that provide online education across the state uh with when this it didn't even happen before this uh crisis for past two years erskine has been a cheerleader for the virtual education we've been talking to several stakeholders on the importance of our virtual education and uh, the impact it's making in south carolina it, this past few weeks we are in the third week of this and it just showed the power of virtual education 5000 students across the state to the extent possible these schools are providing uh, support and i think very less than we haven't heard from the schools or the families that there was little interruption in the instruction we have been hearing stories of families and teachers i know there is some schedule changes because teachers are also have, have their kids in their home but to the extent possible these three online schools are providing the instruction to all these 5000 students across the state not only providing the support to their families by using the virtual school partners we are providing web series throughout the state we are building a library of web series how can a brick and mortar especially a teacher who has taught all her life in a brick and mortar classroom to manage accommodations in an online platform how do we do progress monitoring in an online platform because you don't want 300 special needs students to come back and say we received 5000 we lost 5000 minutes of special education so there's a lot of support and knowledge that's coming from the online schools helping the brick and mortar schools these brick and mortar schools I can only tell you, we are stronger because of our schools. They have gone above and beyond. Remember, these schools, some, some most brick and mortar, do, do not have a meals program. They do not have transportation. The, the accountability on, on the brick and mortar schools, or even virtual schools, if we don't do things right during this time, it can impact them significantly in the enrollment and the new projects they're working on. That, that I can only tell you the pride we feel every day, just watching and listening to our school leaders, manage, looking at their social media. Uh, yesterday, a school leader did a coffee with the principal, and almost 500 families joined the Zoom meeting. 500 families. It's, it's, it's unheard of. And this is the third week. This is not an online school. This is a brick and mortar school. They did a coffee with the principal, and 500 families joined. It's because it just didn't happen overnight. On March 16th, when the government notified that schools will be closed, these brick and mortar schools jumped on it. They took, the, they jumped on it right away. Their communication, communication, communication with the families, students, these teachers, putting themselves at risk at some point because they were following the 10 people in a building rule, maintaining social distancing. They are coming to the schools on different time schedule are doing things they are required to do because schools are considered essential. And they are coming to these schools. They are providing systems and processes so there's equity. So a family that cannot have an online access to a computer, how can we provide packets to these families? So again, so proud of what our schools have been doing. Uh, and again, balancing the role of an authorizer. That has been, and since day one, as you heard us say, the Erskine philosophy is trading autonomy for outcomes. So our schools have a relationship. It's all about outcomes, not about who is, whose memo is it. As long as we all are in agreement, this provides better benefits for our kids. Our schools are in alignment with it, and we are really blessed for that. 
I just want to give a few uh, uh, highlights on what we are doing to adjust. Again, 5,000 families are continuously, to the extent possible, receiving uh, the, on uh, the continued services of virtual education. The 5,000 students in the brick and mortar schools, around 14 brick and mortar schools, are gone above and beyond and providing e-learning and paper pa uh, packets. And I'll explain later why we have to do both. Uh, again, some schools, some of the brick and mortar schools built in online classes already in their as part of their charters. So they are not online schools, but there's some part of the day where they take online classes. I was seeing parents commenting on social media, thank you for this transition, because now I'm able to easily transition into the online education. So charter world may completely change next year. Schools may have amendments adding a virtual component to their schools because they don't want to ever go through this again. Um, our schools, uh, some of the plans, they're using Google Classrooms, Zoom meetings, several online resources, Khan Academy, Imagine Learning, USA Test Prep, and shout out to the business community and the private community. Some of the companies have come in and said, use it. And after this epidemic, you don't have to use it or you, we don't, you don't need to buy it, but just use it. So shout out to the business community that's been jumping into support. Teachers are logging in to provide instruction, providing some independent work because they don't want to make sure because their parent is taking care of three kids and the computer, their family may have only one computer. So the teachers are providing the instruction and they are doing a follow-up of the instruction. Uh, a lot of communication is going through parent squares and using softwares like Class Jojo. So communication, communication, that's been really impacting with the instruction. State support. Again, I just want to brag about South Carolina. Erskine and virtual education will not be the place where we are if we don't have our State Department of Education support. Our superintendent, Molly Spearman, has been extremely, extremely supportive of online education and charter schools. She, the, the SCDE has a virtual SC program. It's not a school, but it has, it's for several years, they have been providing online classes for, uh, for all public schools in South Carolina. We are very fortunate that they have a designated staff at the SCDE who takes in all our questions and gets back to us in this time within 24 hours. So South, in South Carolina, we are invited to every phone call. Ms. Spearman has done a daily phone call since March 16th, and we have been invited to all these meetings, and we have been shared information uh, on a daily basis on what's going on. So really fortunate with the support we are receiving from State Department. Um, again, the staff uh, at the SCDE have taken in this busy time, we are surprised on the unique challenges and questions that our charter schools face, they're able to respond in a, such a short span. So again, shout out to SCDE uh, in all the support they have provided. The challenges are there. Uh, I heard from both Mr. David and Mr. Peter, the challenges of how are we meeting the needs of disadvantaged students. Uh, the reality is uh, the state set certain ex uh, expectations on learning plans. Because as authorizers and as charter schools come with unique challenges, we created an extended nine questions. And uh, Mr. David, you'll be glad to know one of the big questions is summer school. What are you doing about summer school? This is a challenge we are posing that, uh, to our We are challenging our school. Yes, this is happening and we are learning. There are no perfect answers. We all know that. So we are asking and in a way challenging our schools. Are you thinking about summer school? With the new federal funding that's coming, 
Is that something you want to implement? Are teachers buying into the new summer reading? So these are things that we are trying to work uh, in this uh, challenging situation. The biggest challenge is, as you know, South Carolina is a rural state, and we have almost a million families that live in the rural areas of South Carolina. Yes, our brick-and-mortar system schools have one-on-one uh, -on -one computers. Most of them do. But those computers are not designed to go home. Their capabilities are not built in. So we are working to get them hotspots, but that's going to open a whole different can of worms because if the computer is not uh, designed so they can block certain things, that it's going to go into a whole different cybersecurity issue. So again, it's a learning curve for all of us. And I think uh, what Heritage Foundation is doing right now to open up and talk to other leaders across the country, we don't have answers for certain things. I think we just have to explore and hopefully find them sooner. Uh, but that is the biggest challenge is what do we do for the families? Yes, some have internet and they are able to log in. High school students are driving to certain high schools and in the parking lot, they are connecting to the school Wi-Fi and doing it. But there are certain families that have three to four students with one computer. How do we challenge it? Schools have gone above and beyond. I want to brag on our schools is they are trying to do both e-learning and distance learning by packets. The risk of, of, of passing on the virus is still there, but as essential employees, they are taking precautions on how to pass on the packets and take them back. Uh, and also working on, we are working with our IT to make sure what kind of um, systems can be put in place. So when these uh, hotspots go to these families, how can we protect the cybersecurity? We are, as you can see, a lot of, as I pan around all this, my social media, I see in traditional brick and mortar schools who have never done this, are posting the access codes online. Anyone outside the school network can log into this. So I think a lot of training and coaching, I think in a way we are blessed because of our work with online schools for almost several years, it has helped us to catch certain things. And because we are providing the training to our schools, it's helping us. But I think overall, there is a cybersecurity issue when we are going into this unknown waters. We have to be very careful. But working with business partners and our IT, we are trying to send the message. That one of the first few things we focused on when we learned this on the 16th uh, is connectivity. It's connectivity. It's not just internet connectivity. How are we going to connect with our school leaders? How are school leaders going to connect with parents? How are school leaders going to connect with families and students, school staff, how are they going to understand that, yes, it is risk, but we have to create a schedule where teachers can come into the school. So connectivity, that's where we highly focused on. We created an FAQ on our on day one. We created an FAQ because if, if everything is an emergency, nothing is an emergency. So we create an FAQ so school leaders can go and get their responses there. We created a, a Google document. We call it an institute handbook, COVID-19 handbook. So rather than every staff member at the institute sending 200 memos to schools and bombarding them, we're trying to put it in a handbook so schools can go at one spot and get that information. We created a text group within our school leaders and just to see how it all brought these leaders together. In a, in a school leaders meeting in a regular time, they'll come in, they chat, they say hello, they may like their Facebook page, but now it's, hey, I need 50 hotspots and we could see school leaders Hey, I have 40, let me give it to you. The support they are helping each, each other is, and this is statewide. 
and some of them may have not never seen each other or been or never spoken to each other but they are helping each other we have done weekly zoom meetings with our school leader now that a lot of information is settling down and we we are still looking for some answers we have paused our face to face conferences and we are focusing more on sending the information out our website is i think one of the strongest information system where all the information especially at federal programs power school can come access the website the calls with the cde connectivity to the cde and getting that information and sometimes are uh, dissected and or not being a postman but just taking the information from the state and giving to the school but rather take the information tailor it and only give like a one pager to the school so they have so they can focus on what they need to focus on uh, our specialist has done a phenomenal job to focus on fopa violations and making sure coaching the schools and communication people on fopa on specialist and making sure students are receiving the services students are being evaluated to the extent possible and if not work with the scd to uh, to resolve some of those uh, our virtual school partners have recently did a webinar on dss nationally the dss reporting has come down the the reporting has come down so we immediately reached out to our virtual partners how do we identify these in an online platform so that webinar is posted on our website uh, we our watch virtual school partners are doing web series talking about special ed accommodations how to interact with multiple kids in the family uh we as again uh we put a nine question survey out to our schools challenging them asking them seeking guidance on what is the next step yes we will go through all these uh, steps of report card graduation and everything but that's not enough our kids have to catch up twice next year what are we going to do if this slows down in may what's the next step how are we going to move the needle because at the end of the day charter schools are in a, we all have to agree we have a different set of accountability and we have a higher set of accountability both at the families level and at the state level so the question we challenge our schools and we are challenging ourselves how can we assist our schools in moving the needle after this crisis is resolved but what are we doing now to plan and i do agree with mr david on this summer school summer school summer school we have to use the time really to make sure kids are brought up and at least some level of instruction and the second level of uh, uh, providing getting them ready for next year so yeah these are a few things that we are working on uh, in south carolina through urskin and with our phenomenal schools that's great thank you mr v that's extremely helpful um very uh it's it's good to hear that schools are are working together and sharing information especially so quickly we have a few minutes left for some uh questions and answers um let me mr v let me start with you as i did with the others can you uh talk to me about um uh the traditional district schools have you heard from any of them have they contacted either you or any of your schools directly for assistance help guidance uh ideas uh i think it's 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 both we, we are reaching out to them and they are reaching out to us it's it, it's vice versa uh we we received a memo from state department about graduation requirements and uh, how to put grades into the system to re, rather than creating the wheel i advised all my accountability team to reach out to their contacts at the local school districts and work and develop a system that works for everyone Uh, i think it is time for us to look at public schools and reach out to them and yes to answer your question it's vice versa we are reaching out to them and they are reaching out to us 
Great, that's very helpful. Um, okay, so we have a few questions from uh, some of our attendees. Um, let me, uh, I'll, I'll address this one to Peter, and then uh, I'd love for Mr. V and for David to, to weigh in as well. Um, so the question is, uh, what are the challenges, the biggest education-related challenges anyway, that you're hearing from families, especially, and Peter, in your case, as you're making phone calls, as you said, and sending surveys home, um, what are you hearing? What are the biggest challenges that you're hearing from them right now? Great question. Um, I think there are two just very predominant things that we're hearing from families. One is, is that, yes, families absolutely want learning to continue, right? Um, the other is, is that families are faced with unprecedented challenges. I mean, we survey, we, we survey traditionally underserved community in West Phoenix where joblessness, health concerns um, are more prominent than they might be in other neighborhoods, but not to the extent and the immediacy that we have seen now. And, um, you know, many of our families, if they had lost their jobs uh, over the past couple of weeks, have gone back to um, many of our families are immigrant families from Mexico and have gone back to live with family in Mexico because it was easier uh, at the time for them to make that decision. And so that's just something that we continue to navigate. Our, our mantra has been we aim to support families and students as people first. Um, which is a focus on to what extent we can align some resources to be supportive, um, while also knowing that, as I mentioned, first and foremost, uh, schools are places of learning, and our goal and our family's goal is to maximize the learning for our students in the, you know, the remaining quarter of the 2019-2020 school year. So I would say that that there's a balance between those, um, and we and we recognize that in the first week of implementation, we're probably not going to be leaning as much on the accountable learning side as our goal should be and is, as families are navigating very real challenges right now, as students are taking jobs, our high school students are taking jobs to support their families. That is something we have heard quite frequently um, as grocery stores in our in our city are, are on hiring blitzes and many of our students are looking to support their families in that way. Um, we are just continuing. We do think that by continuing to touch base with families, we'll just have a good pulse check on where we continue to um, lie in the balance between, you know, a very unprecedented at home situation and maximizing learning for students. Thank you, Peter. That's very helpful. Uh, David, you've been um, listening, I know, this whole time. So, David, can you tell me in the uh, both the school leaders, because I know I'm sure you've been in touch with the school leaders, with the schools you're involved in now, as well as um, at Boys Latin and elsewhere. So what have you heard both from parents and school school leaders about what the challenges are? I mean, what are the big ones that you hear over and over again? Well, I think the, the first big challenge is the whole navigating the whole IT thing. Uh, like uh, uh, someone said earlier that, you know, you can have a family with four kids and one computer and you, know, you got to get everybody's work done and that's not always easy. But even, even beyond that, a lot of schools have put out IT surveys to ask what kind of connectivity was in the home. And people would almost invariably say, yes, we have some type of uh, connectivity. But it turns out a lot of that is uh, through a phone instead of uh, uh, a um, modem and, and having, you know, I, uh, uh, excuse me, um, 
IT connect connectivity throughout the house and multiple computers. So the first thing to do was to kind of solve the con connectivity problem. And I think a lot of, uh, of the cable companies are helping with that. Um, somebody talked about Cox where they live. Well, in, in Philadelphia, Comcast is the big one and they're opening up um, their system for low-income families too. So that part is getting taken care of outside of school, but the schools still have to uh, uh, get computers out to students. And um, that's, that's, that's something, that's an expense for a lot of schools that they weren't expecting this year. Um, so uh, there's a, there's a whole, this whole thing is a, a whole, a whole new world that someone said. So you have people who are in their first and second weeks of this, schools are in the first and second weeks of this, who are just trying to get their arms around this thing. But you see schools in their fourth, fifth, and sixth weeks of this, and you see some real action because people are moving pretty fast. And I think it's in response to the parents. The parents don't want a stop in learning, even in this situation. They want to do whatever they can. Some parents are more capable of, of, of filling in for some of that teaching or making sure that the resources are there so that the child still has access to education. But if we want to educate everybody, we have to deal with everybody's specific situations. And, and I think that once you get past the first or second week, that's what it turns out to be. You're trying to put out fires. This kid doesn't have a computer. These people don't have connectivity. They need the second computer. Somebody's computer broke. You know, those are the kinds of issues that that I think a lot of our school leaders are trying to do as this thing matures. Um, and I actually, in spite of all the calamity and all the pain and certainly the frighteningness of this uh, illness, I think this is going to create some new opportunities in education. I think that number one. The whole idea of cyber education for anybody who used to say they didn't like it before, <laughs> you need it. It's part of life. And there's no place else where you're dealing with people where they don't use cyber, some type of cyber kind of con connectivity. My wife works for Aetna Insurance Company. She works out of our house. She's a, she's a systems analyst. She works with a team. They're all around the country. They talk cyber and they talk, you know, they're connected with, with uh, you know, webinar, you know, the, the go to meetings and all that type of thing. That's the way the world is. And it's going to come into education now. It's forced into education. Now. And I think that it'll help certainly schools that, that can't get to their students who can't get to their schools for some temporary reason. But I think the bigger thing is it'll bring educational resources to people who may be a long ways from a, a Latin teacher, but they can have Latin in their school, or a long ways from a calculus teacher. They can have calculus in their school. Those are things that we should have been doing a long time ago. This gives us an opportunity to give it a whole new look. And I'm looking forward to the benefits that'll come out of this tragic situation. Thank you, David. Um, time for, uh, I think, one last comment, Mr. V, on, on those questions and, and what uh, David and what Peter were saying. Uh, I'll let you have uh, the last word here. Yeah, I think they both have covered most of the challenges we are going through. Keeping the staff motivated and schools motivated during this time is so, so essential. Uh, a lot, some requirements have been waived 
some requirements have not, like federal reimbursement, all the title programs, those reimbursement dates stay the same. Someone has to key in those millions of dollars to get reimbursement. So there's keeping the staff motivated and some of the jobs, we have designed them to be coming to the offices or schools. They can't print checks, millions of dollars of checks at home. So motivating the staff, keeping their safety is one of the concerns we are trying to address both at the school level and at our organization, trying to make sure how do we balance uh, this workload and what's important, what's not important, and also keep the staff motivated and the schools motivated. Thank you. Well, gentlemen, thank you all for uh, joining us today. And I'm, I'm so grateful for your insight and for everything that you shared with us. Um, and I wanted to say, I, I think the, the final thought, David, that you left us with this idea that uh, this situation could help schools open up to this idea of personalized learning, I think is an exciting idea. I mean, I think it's something that, you know, we certainly want um, schools and, and parents and families to put, be putting health and safety first and being able to manage what they're able to now. But but the idea that what we're doing here is something that could last us in the future uh, and make education more uh, tailored to the needs of each child is an exciting prospect. And I hope that uh, I hope that we can carry that with us right now um, as we uh, as we make all of these adjustments. So thank you, thank you to everyone that joined thank us you. online today, and uh, we wish everyone well. And we hope you'll join us at our next event. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Janet. Thank you.